לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, This is really one of the greatest parshas. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, this is one of the greatest parshas ever. Tetzaveh is actually a fantastic parsha. If you like clothing, if you like the idea of the aesthetic, and we're going to talk about some of this. But first, let's, let's take the, the opener. Explain what Shemen Zayed Zach is, Jeremy. It is absolutely pure olive oil. Olive oil is considered, you know, they didn't, they didn't have compact fluorescence. They didn't have LEDs. Uh, pure olive oil was the cleanest, most fragrant burning fuel. And so for all purposes, for lighting, for anointing, you were supposed to have the top of the line olive oil. And that's, that's best the- olive oil ever gives off a clean light, a smokeless light, a smokeless flame. Very important if you are kindling light in a confined space, you don't want smoke because it'll dirty up all the curtains. Barry? Or if you're vaping. Or if you're what? You're vaping. It's also good. Ner tamid. Lalot ner tamid. Explain ner tamid, Barry Chesler. So the ner tamid is the light that has to be regularly lit. It's in the Kodesh, one of the sections of the Mishkan. And it's to provide light, because otherwise the room would be dark and there's work that has to be done. It's where the showbread was displayed on the shohan, and it's where the incense was, was burned. And therefore, every morning and every evening, the Kohanim would have to light the Ner Tamid. We think of it as eternal light, but better understood as a regular light, just like the Tamid offering was the regular offering offered twice a day. And what's striking for us, I think, is that when we look at a synagogue, when we go into the sanctuary, most of us at some point, perhaps the first place we look is to see the Ner Tamid, the eternal light. And there in our synagogue, the eternal light is symbolic. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording that in I guess 100, maybe 150 years ago, the eternal light in a synagogue would have to be lit. But we now use electricity, and now it's on all the time, or can be on all the time. And it provides a different symbol for us. I think that we vest our sense of eternality of a people in this electric eternal light. You know, the, um, I was talking about the, the old Yikimor prayer for, uh, for communal well-being is, is for the people not name ner la maor you give you give you know you give the lamps to illuminate because the synagogue is a place 
symbolically and physically of light. Now, one of the main things, we didn't really talk about this. I, I think we, we touched on it maybe last week, but we didn't really get into it, is that the, the Mishkan and the Mikdash are told in such a ways that they call to mind Genesis chapter one, or maybe it's the other way. Maybe Genesis chapter one calls to mind the construction of the Mikdash. There's a, a way in which we're building a cosmos here. And what's the first thing that God did when creating the, the real cosmos is let there be light. So we having to see what he was doing, having <laughs> he, was, he should have just taken his phone and put on the, the spotlight. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but having light is, is for that reason, like totally symbolic, because because that is uh, one of the primary uh, elements of creation. So I think I think this is a, a key theme. Uh, it's going to obviously appear as we go further into these parshiot, the Vayakal Bakude, again, with the whole structure. But again, also the the connection that we make from these parshiot to the synagogue, the Nertamin, and of course, we're going to see in a moment or two the the, the clothing of the Kohen, which wanna, appears in, in, in the synagogue in various forms. But go ahead, Barry. I want to just add one other point, that we live in the world where we're blessed with technology that does a lot of things for us. And we have to remember that the eternal light used to have to be tended to. And so much of what went on in the Mishkan required human presence. Now, a lot of things that we do, we could set in motion and let them work on their own. And it's all, it's obviously a lot easier for us from a technical technological point of view to live in the 21st century, but sometimes it takes us away from the arena of action because we become spectators because technology does the job that we used to do. Right, and so the, the symbols themselves become, in a way, they, they adapt to, to the new circumstances, the new technology. Okay, let's look at 28 verse 2. Ve'asita vigde kodesh la'aron achicha, and this introduces the whole theme of the Parsha, or at least the, the beginning. You shall make clothing of the holy to Aaron, your brother. And I'm going to translate as for glory and splendor, or glory and beauty. These two words, Chavod and Tifarad, actually appear elsewhere in Jewish tradition. We'll talk about that in a second. But, but, I want to talk just in general now or ask the two of you to, to reflect on the role of beauty and the role of the aesthetic sense in worship. Jeremy? Yeah, I think it's a great topic. We have a, a somewhat misplaced sense. You know, it comes, from a, it comes from a whole bunch of things. It comes from, we talked about this last week a little bit, you know, the sense that Judaism loves time more than space and we don't have, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral. In our in our history, um, it comes from a sense, you know, maybe in our particular generation, a post, you know, a post uh, World War II, like you know, sixty generation or baby boom generation that, that doesn't like fanciness, that likes something a little bit sparer. Maybe we're a little bit suspicious of religious splendor of, of kavod and tifaret. Uh, maybe we like things a little bit more stripped down. But I think it's a in in significant ways a mistake. Because the aesthetic dimension of of human life is, you know, it can it can awaken us to all kinds of beauty and rapture. And so we do have another uh, uh, religious slash aesthetic value in Judaism that's, that's relevant here, which is called hidur mitzvah, making the mitzvah beautiful. Uh, there's the line in the crossing of the Red Sea, ze'eli ve'anvehu, 
this is my God and I will glorify him. And Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, means that you should, this is your God and you should make the instruments of worship and Jewish communal life as beautiful as possible. So the Mishkan with uh, all the all the threads that go into the into the Mishkan are supposed to be uh, blue and purple and crimson wound around the kind of whitish blacks. Uh, they're gold threads and everything is sewn. And you can only imagine, especially in, in a gray world, how radiant it was. And the Kohen too, as a kind of exemplar of of uh, human perfection. Now, again, in in our world. We're suspicious of. We, we we don't we don't believe in um, ideals of perfection. We think that they kind of make other people feel bad, and they make they're kind of exclusive. But the Torah, I think, is saying something a little different. Is saying, look at this gorgeousness. Look at how beautiful this can be. And so the priest representing the people is is uh, is is to wear things that just dazzle. And to make the uh, Am Yisrael, whom the, the Pifish represents, say, oh, my goodness, look at that beauty. So yeah. I want to add another point here. And that is that the Kavod and the Teferet are a reflection of God. That a lot of times when we look at what a person wears, we say not those clothes are beautiful, but that person is beautiful. And I think what the Kohen is doing, he's wearing things of beauty to reflect God's beauty. And we're not supposed to look at the Kohen and say, look how beautiful he is, but look how beautifully he serves God. And that's an important point, I think, and an important distinction because there is this tension. You know, we all know the expression, the clothes make the man, the clothes make the woman, but here we see a kind of dissonance between the clothes themselves and the person wearing them, and we don't want to confuse the two. Well, I think this, this, you know, elicits a certain tension in our life. And Jeremy, you touched on it because, you know, we all uh, live now in a, in a time where uh, clergy, especially, which are the descendants of priesthood in the Torah, uh, we basically don't adorn ourselves with the, this kind of, uh, these kinds of garments. Uh, I, I think that the, the robe, the robes of the rabbi and ro- robes of clergy probably went out in the 70s, although although there are some holdouts in them. I don't know if they're coming back. Jeremy, going to wear a robe in shul? Gonna, they're coming back anytime? <laughs> it's part of my Purim costume. I wear my bathroom. Exactly. No, we wear the kittel on, on, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and, and the kittel is a very, very unique kind of robe because it's, it's, it's white. It's minimalist. It's also... It's purity and death. You know, death. The the kittel is worn. You know, by the by by the person for the beyond. Um, but but we we've let that go, and I think partly because of the egalitarian impulse, we do not want to differentiate ourselves from people. And I think also because the aesthetic sensibilities have changed. Look, you know, we we're not the only ones to remark on the fact that if you look at the construction of synagogues, you know, in the last I don't know, 30, 40 years, it's very different from the ways people have constructed synagogues uh, 100 years ago. The, the care, the level of architectural detail, they're all different. The aesthetics are different. You come to my show, my show was built uh, you know, 2006 to 2009. Beautiful, but minimalist. The, 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 the parochet is just plain white. It's not even ornamented at all. 
and you project on it what you want. And that it reflects a different kind of sensibility. Barry, you want to say something? The Christian... Uh, oh, go ahead, I was just going to remark that um, when I'm in an interfaith setting, Christian clergy all have their vestments. And, and they say, well, where are your vestments? And I, I do not... <laughs> I, I know some of our colleagues will come with a talus. I just, I cannot... I just do not do that. I really can't... Uh, <laughs> I don't feel it to wear what is for me a, you know, a mitzvahdik garment in that kind of display. But the Christians, they all have, you know, first of all, the, those especially who are themselves black or, or with large numbers of black um, congregants, they'll have, you know, the African inflected, there'll be the LGBTQ, the rainbow inflected, as well as whatever in the, in the Christian liturgical ca calendar, you know, they have different colors for different times of the year, the, the, you know, the Lent and the Advent and all those different uh, colors. Um, I think that those religious communities have come to expect that there is for clergy some kind of particular getup, a uh, uniform that that enables them to serve with a kind of kavod v'tiferet. But it's worth thinking about the function of uniform. A uniform makes everyone in a certain sense the same. Right? In other words, we don't distinguish ourselves by the clothes we wear when we wear our vestments. We're wearing things that other clergy people are wearing as well. What makes the high priest unique is that the high priest is the only one who's going to wear his clothing. The regular Kohen has a, a smaller amount of clothing, of articles of clothing, and they're slightly different. He has just the basics, you know, the shirt, the pants, and not all the things that make the, the Kohen Gadol so distinguished. So there is a narrative in this text here about, about beauty, I think there's also a relationship between beauty and justice, because we have other verses that say, let your priests wear or comport themselves with righteousness or with justice. So there is a relationship between beauty and the just. And there is a narrative being told. And it's interesting what kind of narrative we are telling when we don't wear robes and the narrative that our Christian counterparts are telling when they do wear robes and you've touched on some of them. And I think the, the basic narrative that we have when we you know, are, are wearing our suits or, or other kinds of clothing, our female uh, clergy uh, colleagues, you know, also have their, their uh, uh, comportment. Uh, we're telling a story of peoplehood really and belonging to the people in this way with, with, Re reflections of the priesthood in the talit and the colors, maybe in some in some form or another. But there are in 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 the text here it says the ela begadim asher yasu choshen veifod neil ketonet tashpetz mitznefet veavnet. In English, a breastplate piece, an ephod, a robe, a quilted tunic, a mitre, a sash. There are seven pieces of the priestly, high priestly wardrobe, that's not an accident. Seven is the, the important number here, seven. So the, narr the basic narrative is in addition to glory and splendor, representing God, representing the people, there's a narrative of wholeness, of creation. Seven is the number of creation. And so the priest is reflecting that. And we're gonna see certainly in Vayakel and Pekude how that, um, that theme of creation really itself gets woven into the, the whole uh, structure. It's not just creation, it's recreation as well, because this is a creation that keeps on going. And that, I think, 
makes a, a powerful statement because creation in our tradition is not a one-time event. It's something that has to be renewed. So we have a couple of very important implements here. Just before, let's talk about the Petil Techele. There is the Kohen Gadol wears a, a kind of crown and there's a, 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 a blue cord on the, on the crown. And the Kohen also wears a, a, um, a, blue, a blue tunic and there are blue cords on the tunic. And of course, the tzitzit have al-kanaf petil techelet. So what is the petil techelet? What does techelet mean? Just remind us, Jeremy. Give me some techelet. Give me some techelet. Well, um, what? Some tachlas about techelet. Well, you know, in Kabbalistic terms, techelet does represent the shekhinah, who is the tachlit, the tachlas, of all the spirot who who make their way down flow into her, um, it is the is the sky blue. The the um, in our own day, uh, the twentieth century, um, the ancient royal blue dye has been recovered in this masterful uh, work of Torah scholarship and archaeology and chemistry, uh, largely thanks to the great uh, Rabbi Yitzchak uh, Halevi Herzog, who is the who is the chief rabbi uh, first of Ireland and Britain, and then ultimately Veritas Israel, uh, and he was, was himself trained as a chemist and was able to discover the ancient Tehelet. It comes from this it comes from this um, sea mollusk called a Murex trunculus and uh, trunculus trunculus whatever it is. And and the rabbis say, you know, the 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 chilazon snail thing looks like the sea. The sea looks like the sky. The sky looks like the throne of glory. It's it's kind of a rapturous meditation that you uh, see the infinity of the ocean and the infinity of the sky and that's woven into your clothing so you're kind of wearing heaven you're wearing a little remembrance of the kisei hakavod the throne of glory and um it and the the word techelet might might mean something like epitome the the essence of color or something something like that but so what uh, then is the significance of tzitzit hakanaf betil techelet what is tzitzit to connect us to heaven or tzitzit connect us to you are a people. A whole... I'm, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the only reasonable answer that poetic sensibility can give you, which is yes. Okay, yes. So I think uh, <laughs> that um, I think that you know. For, first of all, it, it is absolutely true, as as you were alluding to, that uh, in, in the ancient world, you know, some people. As this is what Barry's point about shared uniforms or unique or unique ones, um, some people, the king people, got to wear royal blue and everybody else was wearing kind of dingy clothes. And it's absolutely the case that the Torah is saying every single person should have a little thread of malchut, a little thread of blue in your clothing. So everybody partakes of the majesty. But I, I do think that the, the rabbi's other teaching that I said is, is, also, to, is, is also true, that it's somehow a little bit of sky in your, in your clothing. So this this then leads us to to other things that the Kohen Gadol wears, and um, let's talk about the breastplate and, and specifically the Urim Tumim. What are the Urim Tumim? And uh, I mean, we're not going to name all the different precious stones here, although we could. Barry, the Urim Tumim function. They have an aesthetic function, they have a literary function, and they have a, I guess, miraculous, oracular function? Or oracular function. So it was used to divine God's wish. Um, and it may be akin to a dice 
And when you think of dice, dice have six sides. You have a pair of dice, that's 12. So that would be the 12 stones on the breastplate, perhaps. And it was invoked at various times to find out what God wanted us to do. I believe it comes up in the story of King Saul and um, later with David as well. Um, there is an interesting idea that we, we need to discover ways to access God. And that quest to access God is as old as our people is. And one of the ways is through the priesthood. And the priest stands for God in a certain sense, but he also needs access to God, and the Urim and Tumim would allow him to do that. On this breastplate with the 12 stones, 12 also reminds us of the 12 tribes. And the verse in the Torah connects those 12 stones with the 12 tribes. And in a sense, the Kohen is wearing the children of Israel. He is the embodiment of the collective people. And that speaks volumes. Jeremy, the, 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 the role of the Uri Vitumim, and then maybe it, it drops off and and just in your your relationship or your your take on it your thoughts i have to say that uh, what barry said is 100 correct it, it is this oracular thing um nobody knows exactly what it is beyond of course the motto of yale university figure um it is mentioned in uh in those narratives that you said and also um uh in in zorah bracha right uh urecha Levi, you hold these oracular powers. Um, you know, <laughs> whatever. I, I, I'm I'm into the poetic side of religion. I'm I'm into the mystical side in a big way. Oracles, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. Wearing the jewels on your heart, inscribed literally. There was what's that called? Lapidary, where you inscribe yeah, in gemstone. Yeah. I'm literally inscribed with the names of the of the tribes on your heart. And then also the um, there's like a the the there's a poncho quality here. It's over the shoulder, and there's these um, there's these other two stones that that serve as buttons, like uh, the somehow the 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 whatever the hook goes right. around, and those also have the names of the tribes on them. It's the exactly as Barry said. This was to me really poetic that the, that the Kohen Gadol becomes the avatar of the people because it's been inscribed on his clothing. And I think of this, by the way, my own kavanah and I put on tefillin is, you know, Shema Yisrael is becoming part of my body in the way that the, that the, that the you know, 12 Shvatim are becoming part of the Kohen Gadol's body. So it's very interesting you mentioned that because we, we have another text, a small text, that appears on the Kohen Gadol's head. The Asita Tzitz Zahav Tahor. You make a diadem of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, as on a seal, holy to the Lord, Kodesh Ladonai. So the, the Kohen was supposed to wear a kind of crown. I have a picture of it here. I'm going to bring it up to our camera here. Kodesh Ladonai. It probably wasn't written in that script. This is uh, Ashurian square script. It's probably written in Paleo-Hebrew script, the pre-Hebrew uh, pre script, or more like the Canaanite script. But the point is, exactly as I said, Jeremy, it's what is it? What's with the Jews wearing texts on their body. What, what is up with that? And, and I want, can you just talk more about that sensibility when you are putting on tefillin? I think that tefillin is, is, the, is the closest 
way that we can reflect on inscribing on ourselves without actually writing on ourselves? Well, you're, doing, you're doing pretty good. Just keep keep it up. You're keep doing it up. Good. Right. So, <laughs> we, we like the text. We like the text around us. I mean, we're not talking about these partial, although we have, you know, in the the summer parshiot with the Shema, you know, we like text. We like having this. And, and I suppose there is a, a relationship between the, the wearing of text, the placing of text on your doorpost to, to say that we, we don't represent God in any physical way, but we sure come to represent God's word in, in an actual way, which is the words, the actual texts are on our body. Go ahead. Well, we have to think about what a word is. It has no physical substance for us. The only thing that has physical substance with a word is a text. Mm-hmm. So we can't crystallize God's word physically unless we write it down. And the Kohen is in a sense, reaching for God. I was struck while you were talking, Elliot, if we come back to that image of the horizon where you look off and you see the blue and the white come together, that's where we sometimes think about meeting God. But we have to meet God here in the here and now, not just in the out there. So we take the images of the horizon, the blue and the white, we wrap ourselves in our talit, we wear the words of God in our tefillin, we put them on our doorposts because we are trying in the course of our lives to embrace God. And that is a task that is never ending and never quite fulfilled for ever. It's something that we have to keep coming back to. We have in this Parsha also um, the set of ceremonies that will ordain the, the Kohanim they will designate. That's them. how they become doctors of divinity. Right. I had someone ask me this week. Maybe I'll ask you guys this week. So, so you know, we're, 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 we, we've got all these beautiful clothes. And then they're going to sprinkle blood on them. What? <laughs> they're going to sprinkle blood on the Kohanim. What's, what's going on here? What, what is, the, the, the significance of sprinkling blood is, as we said two weeks ago, it's to index, it is to designate. And their, their sense of squeamishness is not our sense of squeamishness. I think, you know, we, we are grossed out by the idea that, that blood is on things, but, but it's, blood represents that which designates the holy. And, and, and here in this, in this instance, we are instructing the Kohanim to be designated for God. Barry, you want to? It's also a cleansing agent. When we cut ourselves, the blood comes to carry away the germs. And a lot of us, I in particular, sometimes feel squeamish when we see blood, but blood has a palliative and a therapeutic effect. And I think that for our ancestors, sprinkling the blood as they did on the altar, on the clothing, on the parochet, was a way of designating by cleansing. And when we think of the dominant vocabulary connected with the Mishkan of uh, Torah and Tumah, purity and impurity, the blood comes to purify. The, 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 uh, the interesting, you know, um, I don't know what the exact word for this be, the, the range of meaning around clean and dirty and lehit uh, chata to cleanse with the word chatat 
is an offering, and it is a bloody, dirty offering, you're killing an animal and spilling its blood, but uh, but it also, who yit chata means he is cleansed. And uh, and we have that, by the way, in this, this week's haptara, and we have it certainly in the ritual of the red heifer, which we'll get in, in numbers in numbers chapters uh, 19. I, I do think it's right what, what you said about their sense of sprinkling blood was not you mucked it up and made it dirty, but that you somehow cleansed it. And I would say that one of the main, again, poetic kind of valences is Adam who hanafesh. Life is blood. And this stuff, I mean, it's even the most intense of us nowadays in the 21st century understands the kind of symbolic and mythic qualities of religion. And I think that the, I think that these practices were um, maybe a little less symbolic <laughs> to them and and uh, to ancient to ancient Israelites um, to splash blood on it. I think was to was it, this is a religion of not just ideas and stories and rules and all those things. Yes, but also flesh and blood, and that's blood. what gives that's what gives its big power. All right, so we, we've got a couple of minutes left, and and. We're recording this uh, before Purim, and this will come out on Friday, which is on uh, Purim itself. Uh, let me just ask the, 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 what makes Purim great? What makes the Megillah Esther great? What's, what, is, what is this about? What is, what is great about Purim? What is great about Esther? What is great about any text? Take anything you want. Tell us something great about Purim. Jeremy, go ahead. Um, I, I, I assume you're looking for an answer a little bit deeper than poppy seed hamantashen. But, I, you uh, know what? Poppy seed hamantashen makes it great. Prune. I'm a prune man. <laughs> I think, first of all, as you all know, muntashen. It's muntashen is what it is. It's poppy seed pockets is what it is, and that that became Osne Haman. But I won't insist on that interpretation. We had a wonderful program at our show. Zoom is a Jewish Mexican Jewish uh, donut shop owner here, and she's in Brooklyn. But we had her give a a, a, a lesson for the show on um, on amantash baking. It was, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I think that Purim, to the extent that it's great, and it, it can be a little hard for those of us working in the synagogue rabbinate, but to the extent that it's great, it's the it's the time of year when Judaism just it does not have to be so dang serious about everything. Oh man, it's the most serious holiday. <laughs> so it's it's serious wrapped in silly, yeah. and the silliness gets to a serious dimension because you have to be able to laugh at yourself. And by the way, I think that American society, especially you know those of us in our in our more liberal corners, and I have this is my corner too. We are very taking ourselves extremely seriously these days. A little bit of laughing at yourself, laughing at the king. Um, the, the book that does not mention God's name, the book in which the Jews, which God may be hiding and our Jewish heroine is hiding and and it's all upside down, upside down. We've got to be able to laugh at ourselves. Yeah, okay. Very so chuckling. you can't go wrong laughing at yourself and or especially laughing at you. Um, <laughs> what I would add, what I would add here is that it's a salvation history. And the good guys win. And as Jeremy alluded, things are topsy-turvy. What we expect is undone. What we never expect actually happens. 
And it raises questions if we get beyond the silliness, although part of the silliness is there as well, about what, what is really Jewish identity, right? There, Mordechai is identified as a Jew, but is he Jewish? And that's a key question for us in the diaspora. What makes us Jewish? The other thing that I think makes Purim great is that it's the prequel to Pesach on the calendar, even though it's the consequence of Pesach in history, meaning that when Purim comes a month later on the 15th of Nisan, we have our great story of redemption, Pesach. That is not a silly holiday, but if we don't take a moment, I think, to laugh and to frolic on Purim, then we won't necessarily appreciate Pesach when it comes a month later. So I'm going to answer the same question. What, 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 take, your, what is your thing about Purim? I, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to go to the the most important verse on this year's reading for me. It's just Umi im kazot It's the 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 what Mordechai says to Esther to motivate her to 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 act. He says, uh, "Who knows if." You have attained the royal position for just such a crisis. A very, very deep thought, which is you don't, you, you never know what's your moment. And, and all of us go through our lives with various points that are crucial decisions um, and, and where, where lots of things and lots of consequences can be affected. And I think the fact that she understands from that that she has to make decisions that will, in, uh, in the end, save the Jewish people, I think is really, really crucial. You never know what your moment is, and you never know at what moment you've been chosen. And I think that's one of the, 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 the more serious messages of the Book of Esther. I think the Book of Esther is a book that we, we, we need to take more seriously. Uh, we've wrapped it up in a lot of uh, the, the, the play, which is wonderful. But there, there is at the core of uh, the book of Esther a real important message, as you touched on, about being uh, a member of a minority and a majority living in the diaspora, the experience of powerlessness, the relationship to God that is hidden, uh, and also what your responsibility as a human being is at what particular time. So Esther, what makes Purim great, it raises these questions for me, even even while you're sipping a little bit, a little bit of scotch, a little bit of rye, or a little bit of whatever you like, some export Molson's or whatever it is for our Canadian yeah. friends watching. The, Sh the Shulchan Aruch says, the Shulchan Aruch, there's a commentary uh, in the Shulchan Aruch by Bo Diddley who said you got to have one bourbon, one scotch, <laughs> one beer. And on that note, we want to thank you all for watching. We are so delighted that you have spent some time with us. We wish you a beautiful Purim, a wonderful, joyful Purim, joyous Purim. Enjoy it, and a beautiful Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom from us at Parshatah. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Radio Kurama, Meerstein, Kudash.
שלוש אפים. 